From WAMU 88.5 at American University in Washington, welcome to the Kojo Nandi Show, connecting your neighborhood with the world. It's Tech Tuesday. So far this holiday season, millions of Americans have headed online to buy gifts for friends and family. But unlike in-person transactions, not all online purchases come with a sales tax, hurting the bottom lines of state governments and potentially having ripple effects throughout the economy. In most states, only outlets with a physical presence in that state have to add a tax to their sales, meaning that sites like Amazon and Overstock.com have virtually tax-free sales in most states. Some in the business community see the loopholes as an unfair leg up for e-retailers on their brick-and-mortar competition. But changing the retail landscape to allow for complete sales tax coverage is a difficult proposition, especially because it would likely rely on congressional action. Here to talk about why you may or may not be paying taxes online and how that may change <coughs> soon is Steve Del Bianco. He is the executive director of NetChoice, a D.C.-based e-commerce trade association. Steve Del Bianco, thank you for joining us. Glad to be here, Kojo. It's the right time of year to talk about uh, sales tax. Especially right, since I'll be doing some of my buying online this afternoon, this evening. Also in studio with us is Stephen Kranz. He's a partner at the law firm McDermott, Will, and Emery. Stephen Kranz, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Kojo. It's a pleasure. And joining us by phone from Knoxville, Tennessee, is Bill Fox, director of the Center for Business and Economic Research at the University of Tennessee. Bill Fox, thank you for joining us. Kojo, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Bill, I'll start with you. The idea that transactions where no sales tax is charged are truly tax-free is technically incorrect. If someone makes a purchase online and there's no sales tax, the burden is apparently on the customer to pay the government. How do these so-called use taxes work? Well, that, that's exactly how, <clears throat> how the system operates. With a sales tax, what, what effectively happens is the vendor collects, the, the person I buy from collects a sales tax and sends it to the state. In the case where that doesn't happen, I as the buyer am responsible in every state to go ahead and remit the tax. In many cases, about 25 states, I can remit it directly on my income tax return. In other cases, I have to file, like where I live, Tennessee, I have to file a special tax return in order to do so. It clearly makes it much more burdensome and cumbersome to have this collected at the individual level than having vendors collect it when the sale takes place. It relies on the individual purchaser to do it, and what happens if the individual purchaser doesn't? Well, in the case of when a business buys something that uh, the sales tax was not collected, in many cases there will be some some auditing that takes place, and and you'll get compliance through the combination of of businesses voluntarily paying it or or with the auditing process. State of Washington's done some studies on this, and they find about 25% non-compliance by even the largest businesses. So so on the standards of tax compliance in the U.S., just terrible. In terms of individuals, when I, when I buy something like a car, uh, I have to register it in the state, and so the tax can be collected then. For other things, there's essentially no auditing taking place, and so the amount of money being collected in every state through this use tax on consumers is negligible. Stephen Kranz, there's an underlying principle that determines whether or not a state can make a retailer collect and remit sales taxes. 
How did the Supreme Court define nexus for sales tax? Well, it goes back to a 1967 case called National Bellis Hess, which was the first case where the U.S. Supreme Court articulated um, a, a rule requiring that there be significant presence by the vendor in a state, in the state where the customer is located. In 1992, the U.S. Supreme Court, in the Quill decision, really put some, some meat on the bones of that and defined it as physical presence. If a vendor has physical presence in a state, it can be required to collect the tax. Now, that 92 decision decision has evolved somewhat. And, and if you look at what's happening at the state level today, states are working to change the definition of physical presence. And we can talk about some of those examples throughout the show. We'll be talking about that later. But if you'd like to join the conversation right now, you can call us at 800-433-8850. Does the sales tax rate affect your shopping behavior? 800-433-8850. You can send email to kojo at wamu.org. Shoot us a tweet at kojo show using the hashtag Tech Tuesday or go to our website, kojoshow.org, join the conversation there. Bill Fox, because of Nexus, Amazon currently only assesses sales tax for purchases made on its site in 20 states, including Maryland and Virginia. How much money do states lose out on each year because of e-retailers not paying them sales tax because they don't have a presence in that state? When we total it for all the states, including local governments, we estimate in the in the current year that states will lose something like $17 billion. And that refers only to the losses when a business sells to consumers. It doesn't include things like catalog sales to consumers, uh, and it doesn't include when a business buys from another business. And so, so the losses are significant. Now, this represents... Uh, maybe three and a half to four percent of sales tax collections in a state. Uh, one way to think about that is that that's as if it takes a year's revenue growth uh, away from the state in in terms of the lost sales tax revenues. Steve Del Bianco, let's take it up a notch. Phys- physical presence used to mean that a company had to have an office or warehouse in a state to be required to charge sales tax, but some states have introduced what's called click-through nexus. What is that click-through nexus, and how has it changed the e-commerce taxation landscape? Kojo, that's an attempt to suggest that a business that has agents in your state, even if they're not employed by you and you pay them an occasional commission for an online referral, that that, in in fact, brings you into that state and having a physical presence. And when you you think about uh, what Bill Fox was talking about, the magnitude of this problem is something to really... They really examine at home. I did a little experiment last night on my own holiday shopping, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, 80% of what we did was online. We made 41 purchases from about 20 different sellers online. And 17 of those sellers charged us sales tax for Virginia. That covered 90% of our purchases this year. Only three vendors didn't charge us Virginia sales tax. And they were all small specialty businesses who had something I couldn't buy at Amazon or walmart.com, and they were not uh, having a physical presence in Virginia. Those small businesses become the endangered species if we pursue a dramatic new regulatory regime to sweep every small business into the requirement of paying taxes and being audited by every single state. I know that back in 2008, New York enacted a law popularly referred to as the Amazon Law. Apparently, that was the first time a state attempted to require online sellers to remit sales tax based on the click-through nexus. Now it's quite common. It is, but think about this. Uh, All that a business has to do to avoid the click-through nexus is to stop paying commissions to in-state residents. So companies who didn't want to collect for sales into New York could simply stop paying commissions 
but still make sales into New York. All that does, Kojo, is hurt the businesses in New York who used to earn commissions from the out-of-state sellers. Stephen? The, the click-through laws were what I think of as uh, early evolution in the changing landscape of this nexus discussion. And New York and probably 20 other states now have passed those laws. There are new attacks being mounted by state legislatures and, and the executive branches in the, in the state houses as well, uh, attacking what is the definition of physical presence. New York and Washington State this last year introduced legislation that would have imposed a tax obligation on marketplaces. So you think of a company like eBay or Amazon. There are lots of marketplaces. Etsy is another one. It would have said, if we don't have jurisdiction, we the state don't have jurisdiction over the vendor, we do have jurisdiction over the marketplace and will impose a tax liability on that entity itself. So that's one of the more recent attacks. Alabama uh, just recently announced uh, that Quill is dead, uh, pointing to the 1992 U.S. Supreme Court case. And that's what I was about to get to. It's, it's no longer good law, is the argument by the Alabama tax commissioner. And they have said that everyone who is making sales into Alabama better begin collecting tax on January 1st or else. Kojo, if I could just add right here, sure, uh, what, what, what Steve mentioned, is Steve Del Bianco mentioned, is exactly the concern that I have with the situation we're in. If businesses change how they behave, then they can avoid paying the tax. And so what we have is created, we've created an environment where businesses have a, an incentive to behave in a particular way. Don't create um, some kind of affiliate program. Don't locate in a particular state so that you don't have to collect taxes in that state. And this is, this is the main concern I have have about how the whole system operates is we've created incentives for people like Steve and each of us to go online and find those <clears throat> three out of 20. In his case, it's actually an enormously higher percentage that aren't, aren't collecting for most states. Uh, and, you know, find the place that doesn't have the tax. Find the, If I'm a business, find the state where I don't want to locate to avoid taxes. This is the essence of, of why this is a problem. Steve? Bill, uh, I think you can relax. It's not as big of a problem as you think. Uh, the top 20 e-retailers in this country, they account for 60% of all of America's online sales. And of those top 20, 18 of them already collect sales tax for every single sale they make to customers in every single state that has a sales tax. And the number one e-retailer is Amazon, who now collects tax for 80% of the U.S. population. Kojo, you mentioned earlier how many states Amazon collects for, but it's 80% of the U.S. population. Why would Amazon do that if they're worried about what Bill Fox con considers behavior? Amazon well, opens, fact, opens distribution in fact, centers Amazon in other states in order to reach customers and provide convenience, like next-day delivery. And that hasn't slowed down Amazon's growth one bit. It hasn't driven customers away because customers... Don't go online to avoid sales tax. We look for convenience choice and value. To avoid sales well, tax. I do have Even a study later that, that yeah. will come up later in the conversation Absolutely. that indicates that there are customers who go online, and many of them, to avoid sales tax. But, Steve Del Bianco, I wanted you to take me back to the aforementioned reference to 1992 by Stephen Kranz, the year in which the Supreme Court in Quill versus North Dakota North Dakota said that forcing companies to pay sales tax in all of the states they may do business in was an undue burden on interstate commerce. Why was that seen as the case? They looked at the morass of 10,000 different jurisdictions, each which could have its own rates and rules on what's taxable, 
each state having its own filing forms, in some cases jurisdictions having their own filing forms, and having a business face an auditor from up to 46 different states contributed an unreasonable burden on interstate commerce, and it's still there. You like to talk about 1992 or even the 1960s when cases were litigated, but, Kojo, this goes back 225 years to the U.S. Constitution, where the Commerce Clause was specifically designed to stop the 13 colonies from erecting trade barriers, duties, and taxes to discriminate against businesses that were in an adjacent colony. That's what creates the protection we have for businesses in America today, that when you do interstate commerce, that you have to have a physical presence in a state in order for that state's regulators and tax collectors to be able to drag you into their courts, make you pay their taxes, and follow their regulations. The U.S. Supreme Court's view of what is an undue burden on interstate commerce, though, likely has changed since 1992. We're now in a world where we're not talking about catalog shoppers. We're talking about Internet retailers who don't have to deal with just 10,000 jurisdictions. They have to deal with an infinite number of addresses and figure out how to get a product from inventory in some distribution center to an address that, that is my home. They're able to do that with technology, and technology exists to solve the sales tax collection burden problem as well. So I question whether the Supreme Court would draw the same line today. And in fact, in the DMA v. Broll decision earlier this year, Justice Kennedy, in his concurrence, said to the states, I invite you to bring a new challenge revisiting the Quill case. There are lots of commentators out there who think that it would end up with a different decision if the U.S. Supreme Court took a sec- another look. Bill Fox, has technology changed everything in 2015? Could it still be an undue burden, especially on the larger companies, to calculate how much buyers from different states and municipalities owe? I, I, don't, I don't think it's a burden at all for the larger firms to comply with this. Uh, again, just as Steve just noted, uh, Amazon's effectively already doing this. They're, first of all, they collect for, for many firms uh, that operate on their platform, on their marketplace, as Steve mentioned earlier. And and so they've already shown they can do it. They they just need to, to do it for all sales that take place on their site. Now, it's true, of course, that if you're a smaller firm, uh, this this could present a bigger challenge. And, and as, as Steve Del Bianco noted, uh, you know, this this is an issue for the small guy to have to address. But, you know, the way I think about this is is if I need uh, expertise in the law, I don't go to law school, I, I hire the service, and, and I do this across, we all do this across the whole range of our life. And the, the technology to handle a sales tax, the information on what the sales tax rates are and so forth, are available for purchase just like the other things that, that firms buy. And, and that's the right way even for the smaller vendors to deal with it. I was about to ask Steve if the smaller companies were required to collect and remit sales tax nationwide, what options would they have? Kojo, I'm, I'm not a lawyer. I'm one of those engineers who built software for hundreds of companies to do so exactly So you know this. the software that they can do, I, used and to I, do it. And I do. And, and the, the most alarming thing to my clients was that we, we would be given some free software, some free application programming interface, and then they would have to pay me thousands of dollars to integrate and plug that into the existing information systems that the vendor has. So think about a small business who's got a customized order fulfillment and website front end. They take phone orders for their catalog. Maybe they even take some walk-up traffic at their store. They knit all of that together in a customized way to configure the way that they provide people with the right size and right color, monogramming, and options. All of those systems then have to be changed to plug in the so-called free software. And that's where some of the undue burden is. But a big piece of the undue burden 
is the regulatory reach of 46 different states. Being able to reach a business here in Virginia, in the District of Maryland, who happens to have a website, and merely putting up a website that can be viewed by a California consumer suddenly exposes you to California's long arm of its tax collector and regulator. That is part of the undue burden that I'm not sure the Supreme Court is going to sweep away if it were to relitigate the so-called Quill case. Well, we'll get back to the Supreme the, the Supreme Court after a short break, but you can still call us at 800-433-8850. Do you notice taxes when you shop online? Do you assess local taxes when you sell online? 800-433-8850 or send email to kojo at wamu.org. I'm Kojo Nandi. DC is daily. DC is daily. DC is daily. It's news, culture, and curiosities. From the district, Tacoma Park, Alexandria, Friendship Heights, Hyattsville, Falls Church, Northeast Washington, DC, and your inbox every weekday afternoon. DC is daily. Sign up at DCS.com slash newsletter. DCS.com slash newsletter. Welcome back to a Tech Tuesday conversation on taxing online shopping with Stephen Kranz. He's a partner at the law firm McDermott, Will, and Emery. Steve Del Bianco is the executive director of NetChoice, a D.C.-based e-commerce trade association. They both join us in studio. Joining us by phone from Knoxville, Tennessee, is Bill Fox. He's the director of the Center for Business and Economic Research at the University of Tennessee. You can join the conversation by calling 800 800- Four three three eight eight five zero. Stephen Kranz, many states have pushed the envelope within the bounds of what the Supreme Court set out, with some even going beyond those limits. What are some of the ways that states are interpreting nexus to allow them to collect taxes? Well, where we're headed is a world of what I call economic nexus, and it will be one where the states articulate a standard that says if you make more than a certain dollar threshold of sales to consumers and voters in our state, you have an obligation to collect our tax. And if you don't, then we, the state, have the ability to go after you, the vendor, and hold you accountable for the tax penalties and interest. Economic nexus is where the states are headed, and we see that, as I mentioned earlier, in Alabama. That is their proclamation, and other states are talking about doing the same, which leads me to have great concern for businesses who are facing that kind of risk not collecting a tax, which ultimately isn't their liability. It's the liability of the consumer who's making the purchase. Which brings me to Scott here in Washington, D.C. Scott, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Thank you, Kojo. And that is a perfect lead-in. As an individual, I had no idea it was my um, responsibility to evaluate uh, tax in other states. I'm wondering what happens when an individual is audited by the IRS. Is this one of the things they ask about, or in effect, is it something that nobody at IRS ever follows up on? You're going to jail, Scott. <laughs> not <laughs> not here, so fast. At least Stephen Kranz. The, um, this is not an issue that's looked at by the federal government. It's something that's looked at by state governments and by the District of Columbia, if you live in the city. You have an obligation to pay what's called the use tax. Most jurisdictions send you a use tax return 
along with your income tax return and ask you to voluntarily fill it out and report the purchases that you've made where tax was not collected. That's an, that's an undue burden, asking consumers to track every one of their purchases from a remote seller and self-report and pay the tax or risk audit and liabilities with penalties and interest in well, as well. Scott, thank you very much for your call. Um, Bill, back to a point you raised earlier, one critique of the current system is the idea that consumers will choose to shop online instead of in their neighborhood because they may be able to avoid paying a sales tax. What does the research say about how much the sales tax rate impacts where people spend their money? This is an issue that's gotten researched by a number of different economists and accountants, uh, and there's two different kinds of work out there. One just looks at the question, how much do we alter the degree to which people go online and shop uh, as a result of the sales tax? And, and the answer is, uh, in the most recent article published in, in the, the best of the academic journals, the American Economic Review, finds that consumers are very, very responsive. That is, the higher the sales tax, the more likely I am to shop online to avoid paying the tax. And I'm particularly responsive to some things, like in the case of buying electronics. Uh, we find people are, are very responsive. And so, again, as we think about the ability of even small stores to operate in, in the District of Columbia or in Northern Virginia or in Maryland, and they're trying to compete with, with others not collecting the tax makes it extremely difficult for them to do. And then the other kind of research uh, done recently was on what happens when Amazon begins to collect for a particular state. And, and this group of uh, accountants from uh, Ohio State found a 9% reduction in Amazon sales when Amazon begins to collect for, for a state. Again, clear evidence that people and also the businesses respond to these taxes. And, and so what we're doing is changing the way the economy operates, not because of the underlying economic conditions, but simply because of the way in which we impose and collect sales taxes. Steve Del Bianco. That's uh, curiously at odds to what Amazon tells analysts every quarter on their quarterly earnings calls. Amazon, when it begins to turn on to collection, continues to report the sales growth in that state. And California was the most remarkable example. With an 8% tax rate, Amazon sales continued to grow after they began to collect that kind of a tax. I think that's evidence of the fact that consumers look for value. They look for good deals on shipping when they buy online. They look for a vendor who's really got the convenient, easy front end to do the ordering. And a lot of times, they'll do their research online to find out what it is they want. They'll look at reviews, look at what other people have said about the product, and then they'll go buy it locally. So this notion of uh, showrooming, where somebody will go into a store, try it out, and then buy it online, is balanced by the notion of webrooming, where you go online to research and then go in line, into a store and buy it. So are you saying that sales tax may only be one factor or that it doesn't factor at all into the choices consumers make? It's a very small factor, Kojo, and therefore it doesn't deserve a very large and disruptive legislative solution that's going to create bigger burdens than we have today. Stephen Kranz. Well, more Americans shopped online this Black Friday than in stores for the first time in history. Store sales dropped by at least 10%, and online sales increased by 15 So there is a trend out there. Whether sales tax is a small factor or a big factor, it, it, I think everyone acknowledges it's a factor. And, and there are others that are important as well, like convenience. But my concern here is that Unless we have a federal solution, a national solution, we're going to have a hodgepodge, a worsening hodgepodge of rules at the state level that, that creates confusion for consumers, 
risk for businesses who are making sales and, and ultimately doesn't solve the problem in a way that I think we can solve with good policy decisions and, and technology. But almost every state that charges a sales tax is a party to what's known as the Streamlined Sales Tax Agreement with 23 of those states serving as full members. What's the goal of that initiative? So that is an initiative that's been around for almost 15 years now, and I worked from the very early days of the project to help come up with uniform and simple rules for sales tax administration. I was there as a representative of the business community. And as you said, 23 states are full members. They have adopted uniform definitions. They have provided software to vendors who are willing to collect tax for those states. They've tried to make the sales tax regime uniform and 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 easier to comply with. Not all states are members, obviously, uh, but they've done a lot of groundwork to, to create a national sales tax regime to facilitate tax collection by all vendors. Here's some support for Steve's position from Skip in Alexandria. Skip's personal testimony is, is this issue of the online sales tax really such a big deal? Things that I buy online are often half the price of what I pay at a local store. The few percentage points for tax are irrelevant when the item is so much cheaper. Um, care to comment on that, Bill Fox? Well, you know, I, I agree with all that's been said. I, I agree with Steve Del Bianco's point that, that taxes are not, by any stretch, the only factor that's driving uh, where people shop. If, if that was the, the case, taxes driving the decision, we'd find an even bigger impact. What the rev- research clearly says, these aren't just assertions by people who, you know, don't, don't have data to support their point. This is real, very, very careful analysis that demonstrates that many people are, in fact, altering their behavior. Indeed, I recently myself went into a store, looked at something, uh, made a copy of, of the, took a picture of it, went home and bought it online. I'm certainly not the only one doing this. And uh, I did it for a variety of reasons, and, you know, one of which was what's the sales tax consideration on this. And so th- this is uh, happening in the economy. I don't think there's any question about that. And, and you know, perhaps the person who just, just uh, texted you in isn't changing their behavior. We don't need everybody to be changing it to be altering the way the economy works. Steve Del Bianco. You know, we've been looking at Skip's perspective, the perspective of a consumer and whether they would buy online because of sales tax or in spite of it. But think about the business's perspective. There are tens of thousands of small manufacturers, specialty, specialty line catalogs and businesses who've discovered that the internet gives them access to a nationwide marketplace that they would never have if the internet weren't around. And that opportunity is what's allowing American small businesses to reach customers that would never darken their doorstep. It's creating jobs and economic development. Those small businesses have got to be protected as we try to design a solution for this relatively small and not growing problem. Let's talk with Bill, a business person in Berlin, Maryland. Bill, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Good afternoon. I had problems with my business where people would come in because my Items that I sold were custom and were very expensive. And uh, in Maryland, we have a 6% sales tax. And they question, are you really uh, paying your sales tax? You know, you, you could hide this sale and no one would know. Of course, some, most of them were credit card transactions, uh, and I couldn't do that. But uh, they, they questioned me. Of what, and I, I started looking into this, and I looked at, and dealt with some people locally that had, uh, even in the Ocean City area, some restaurants that had been closed 
for failing to pay their sales tax and people that had been taken to court but didn't go to jail for it. They they just closed their business and moved on to something else. And there's thousands and hundreds of thousands that are owed in the state of Maryland that people just don't pay. Uh, I have a, directly have an issue with paying sales tax to someone in, we'll say, California or New York or, or somewhere else uh, where it would be even harder for the state of Maryland to go and collect. Uh, for them to collect a 6% sales tax from me that I, I worry that they could just use to pad the books with, and, and there's nothing really uh, that the state of Maryland could do about it. So my, my issue is uh, how do you keep track of sales uh, in a, in a, with an Internet company that's outside your state and severely out of your state, uh, long distance in some cases, and uh, know that that's, that's actually being paid. Um, I, I have an issue with it, and I would rather pay that sales tax within my own state than to risk some other place just padding 6% of their books. I'll hang up and listen for your Steve Del Bianco. Yeah, Bill, as a small business, you have custom items, you said, that were relatively expensive. And, and you're the perfect example of someone who would love to have a website to sell those custom items to customers that would never make it to your store in Maryland. And when you do so, I think you hit upon a great idea that the right way to burden you to collect that tax on a California customer is to let you do the tax filing in your home state of Maryland. Maybe even base it off of Maryland's tax rules, Maryland's rates, make you face a Maryland auditor in a state where you live and vote as opposed to being subject being dragged to Sacramento by a California tax auditor. And what you've hit upon in a common sense way is the right kind of solutions we need to look at to try to solve the so-called fairness problem and the notion that states aren't getting all the revenue they're entitled to. Stephen Kranz, do these rules that we're talking about that apply to e-commerce also apply to other forms of remote commerce, like purchases made from catalogs or late-night infomercials? They are the same. Yeah, there's no, there's no difference in the legal construct that exists for catalog, merchants, mail order, uh, and online sellers. Matter of fact, some of these rules have their origins in catalogs. The, the Quill case itself was a catalog seller of, of office supplies into North Dakota. What I think what's important to, to keep in mind here that sales tax is complicated. Our income tax regime is complicated. Very few people deal with their tax obligations using a calculator and, and a pad of paper. Most people are using software to comply with the law and meet their obligations. That's true in the sales tax world as well. I hate to boil it down to a bumper sticker, but there's an app for that. There are software vendors out there who have solutions that are available right now that large companies, mid-sized companies, and small companies are using. And they're using them to do tax compliance in their home state and around the country. The Streamlined Sales Tax Governing Board that you mentioned earlier, Kojo, has mm -hmm. certified many software companies. So the states themselves are stepping in and saying, we know it's critical to have a software solution. We are willing to pay for that software solution and certify that it's correct. And if it isn't, we, the states, will take on any remaining obligation or liability. So they're, they're taking the burden off of business and putting it on the states where it should be. Now, if Congress doesn't create a federal regime, businesses will lose that. They will get no software. They will get no compensation. They will get no hold harmless protection. Those are all things that have been baked into the various federal bills considered over the years. Steve Del Bianco. Yeah, the, the notion that a business could be subject to auditors from other states is something we've got to address. 
think about what happens with apps. Uh, it's always user error that ends up making that perfect app give you an imperfect answer. A, a great story is a, is a uh, small flag manufacturer in Pennsylvania who uses the Pennsylvania law when he sells flags at his store, which says that he doesn't have to collect sales tax on the American flag. That's something that's in the Pennsylvania law. But after two decades of selling his American flags without any sales tax, he was audited by his home state, who said that, oh, wait a minute, that only applied to the current American flag. It didn't apply to Betsy Ross colonial era flags, and it didn't apply to World War II battle flags. So he was liable for 10 years of back taxes plus interest and penalties. And this is just one small example of the kind of mistakes that sellers like Bill, your caller from Maryland, will make if he doesn't know how to categorize his custom item pursuant to the rules of California or the rules of Illinois and New York. And if they make one small error in the way they categorize it, there isn't an app on the planet that will save you from having to pay dearly for that mistake. Bill Fox, get to weigh in on this? Well, I would, Kojo. Actually, I wanted to emphasize that I've heard so much conversation about small businesses referring to small online firms, and, and I'm not hearing any conversation about the small firm sitting on Main Street in every town, You know, literally millions of them sitting on Main Street in every town in the U.S. that are competing with companies that aren't collecting the sales tax. And I, have trying, some, I have one such on the line, but go ahead. Great. Uh, th- th- that's who we need to hear from, because what we find is, is that uh, we, look, we look, took a careful look at this a couple of years ago, and, and you think about employment, and I, I'm going to use Walmart as an example because it was easy to easy to collect the data on. Walmart hires about five million five workers per million dollars of sales. Amazon hires about one. So what we're doing at this point in time is we're incentivizing uh, those kinds of sales, the online sale, which is does uses very little labor. Competes easily with the local, local even small firm, and Walmart, of course, is collecting for most states. Uh, but, but also replacing sales in in stores like Walmart and other small, smaller than stores across the country. And what we're doing is is creating an environment that's job killing. Uh, by subsidizing uh, it, it, through not, non-collection of tax uh, the the online uh, low labor use types of firms. Uh, it's hard for me to see how that's in the best interest of the U.S. economy. Let's hear from Desiree in Old Town Alexandria. Desiree, your turn. Yes, Main Street calling in here. I, I Shame on you, Kojo, for not having a retailer on this program. <laughs> so. Well, I have a representative of... of an e-commerce trade association, but you're right. No not retailer. the same. Not the same. But we, we have, have a retailer e-commerce now. Is, is on the other side. They're the people, the, the the category killers, and you know, I ship. We we are we've been in business for 34 years, and there is such an undue burden on brick and mortars. You would not believe we have to collect tax for everything. We have triple net leases, which people that don't understand that we pay rent, but then we pay taxes on the properties that we are leasing, and we have to collect tax, and then we have business taxes in the jurisdiction we're in. We have so much paperwork. Calculating on a little, you know, I I can use a calculator. I do when I I send something out out, and out of state. I can quickly and easily calculate the amount of tax that I need to collect. And then if I went over and had a a real e-commerce site, I would use Squarespace or something that all small businesses use, and it's already programmed to collect the tax. So it it really is swayed against the brick-and-mortar people, and as your your, uh, guest just said, it really is killing a lot of business. Thank you very much for your call, Desiree. Before I 
Go to a break. I'd like to hear from Daniel in Silver Spring, who also identifies as a business owner. Daniel, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Thanks a lot, Kojo. Uh, I do have a very, uh, uh, recently opened a new small business, uh, an online business that's involved in custom items. Yes. Uh, it's, it's based in Maryland. I just wanted to know if there's a business, uh, if, uh, let's say, the total volume is between ten to 20,000, uh, if I'm required to, to collect uh, sales taxes. Stephen Krantz. Well, you're definitely required to collect the Maryland tax because you're located there, you have a physical presence, and assuming that that rule is still a good rule, you have to collect in Maryland. If you have employees that work remotely, inventory in another jurisdiction, you travel to trade shows in other jurisdictions, there are lots of things that can create under existing law an obligation to collect tax for other states. So keep Keep that in mind. Even though you are based in Maryland, you may have an obligation in other states today. If the law changes, you would have an obligation to collect everywhere unless Congress is involved and sets a protection for small business. And every bill that Congress has looked at over the past 20 years has a small business exception. So you would want that and need it for protection. We'll look at Congress in a second. But before we go to break, Steve Del Bianco. Yes, one of the bills that uh, many in, in Congress are pushing for actually has a small business exception that disappears entirely in the end of the third year. So the bad news for you, Daniel, is that under the legislation that may even pass this month, you would be forced to collect for a single dollar of sales into any of the 46 states and 10,000 jurisdictions that have a sales tax. We are going to talk about the Marketplace Fairness Act when we return. You can still join the conversation by calling 800-433-8850. I'm Kojo Nandi. to a Tech Tuesday conversation on taxing online shipping with Bill Fox, director of the Center for Business and Economic Research at the University of Tennessee. Stephen Kranz is a partner at the law firm McDermott, Will & Emery, and Steve Del Bianco is the executive director of NetChoice, a D.C.-based e-commerce trade association. We got an email from Dana in Kensington, Maryland, who writes, in a good year, I may sell 10 to 15 relatively high-value musical instruments. I would not mind collecting and remitting to states and addition to Maryland if they all had the same simple online portal. I don't mind the tax, just the effort it takes to pay it. I need to produce instruments, not deal with more paperwork, especially if each state is different. Stephen Kranz, with so many differing state policies in place, the next logical step would be to turn to the federal government to try to simplify things. That effort has primarily become legislation known as the Marketplace Fairness Act. What are the provisions of that bill, and how far along is it in the legislative process? Well, unfortunately, legislation has been introduced in Congress since 1973 to deal with this issue. Um, so we're, we're a long ways down the path, but we haven't gotten anywhere. Other than in 2013, the Senate passed the Marketplace Fairness Act. That was the first time that either chamber had acted on a bill dealing with the issue. The Marketplace Fairness Act provides lots of simplification, uniformity, uniformity, 
It it provides that the states must compensate software companies so that the Maryland vendor who's selling musical instruments has a software solution available. The states pay for it. The the, the legislation also prevents against the the fear that Del, Mr. Del Bianco identified of ten thousand audits. Nobody wants that. Nobody needs that, especially a small business. So there are protections that are in the Marketplace Fairness Act or the House version, the Remote Transactions Parity Act. Only if Congress addresses the issue will businesses get those protections. If that doesn't happen, then we will see the state-by-state attacks with no protection for business, no software, no compensation. How likely is it that Congress will address the issue? How far along in the process is this bill? Well, there's been there, there's been no real movement this session of Congress, uh, but as Mr. Del Bianco said, the the year is not over, uh, and and we'll see what happens next year. And Steve, you mentioned that um, this act would exempt businesses that are small businesses make less than one million dollars a year in sales for you. You said that would only happen for the first three years, right? The uh, the House bill would disappear the entire small business exemption that after three years. And there's no small business exemption. From day one, if a seller happens to use an online marketplace for even a dollar of sales, so if you used Etsy or Amazon Marketplace or eBay, you get no exception at all. So this legislation would not sufficiently protect small it businesses? It doesn't. And, and Steve talked about the last 12 years of evolution as the legislation keeps evolving to, to build in more protections. And that's designed to protect businesses from out-of-state auditors. But during those 10 years, a lot has happened in the world. Take a look at the European Commission and the European Union. They, for 10 years, have forced businesses to collect for 75 different rates in 28 jurisdictions, and they've just come out with a new report. Now, we don't always follow the example of Europe, but when Europe makes a mistake and admits it, we ought to try to learn from their mistakes. And they are proposing a complete change to the way they do their internet sales taxes in Europe. They want to allow businesses to file with their home country instead of having to file in 28 different countries. It's similar to what Dana talked about. If she could just pay in one place, her home state of Maryland, one, one portal, that would be so much simpler that we could get a bill like that through Congress without adding huge burdens on business. It just doesn't happen to be the bill that Mr. Kranz and Mr. Fox have favored. They favor a, a different approach that they've been talking about for 12 years. But it's time to turn the page, learn a lesson from Europe, and do something that lets a business file where it lives instead of every place that its customers live. Bill Fox, do you think that exempting small businesses from collecting and remitting taxes on online transactions is good for all of the stakeholders? Well, I, I think it's the right solution in the long term. I certainly agree that initially it, it makes sense uh, to exclude the small firms. But back to, to Steve Del Bianco's point, if we want to follow the European example, um, Europe, when it developed its value-added taxes, started with these small seller exceptions. And they've been uh, slowly going away as countries recognize to try to create one tax system for small businesses and a different tax system for larger businesses. Remembering that by larger, we're talking here a million and a half or two million dollars of sales, mm-hmm. not just Walmart. And, and creating this different kind of system also creates a, a lot of different different dif- difficulties in how business operates. So the, the goal should be 
all firms comply in a, in a similar fashion with a very low cost from an administrative compliance perspective tax system. Now, we may need to transition from where we are to that, and, and I understand the, the need to transition, but, but our goal should be clear, clearly in mind that, that we want a tax system that treats all consumers the same and treats all businesses the same so we can get taxes out of the, the equation in every decision and let us just buy the things we want without having to worry about how the taxes get imposed and let businesses do what they do best, business, without having to worry about uh, how do we evade or avoid taxes. Zach in Silver Spring, Maryland. You see how complicated this is, Zach? Yeah, so, hi, Jojo. Thank you for having me on. I just have one question. Wouldn't it make it easier across the board if the federal government just imposed one sales tax for everybody to follow? That's kind of sort of what we've been talking about here, Stephen Krantz. Well, I I think state sovereignty and the ability of state to raise revenues as they see fit to fund government is important. So I would not be a proponent of a federal sales tax. And in, in fact, because states have not been able to rely on sales tax from remote sellers, many have had to raise income tax rates and property tax rates. So I think we we need this to be a solution that works for the states so that they're not forced to be more dependent on but income and property tax. But there have been some alternative proposals as to how to deal with the online sales taxes. You talk about some other ideas that have been floated. Well, that's, and, and Bill Fox and, and Steve Del Bianco both brought them up earlier, and the the solution in MFA and RTPA is a destination-based regime. It is a regime that says collect tax based on where the customer is located. It creates parity at the point of purchase so that a consumer will pay the same tax no matter whether they're buying from a company in Maryland or a company in California. Now, Mr. Delbo, Del Bianco has been a proponent of an origin-based regime that says remote sellers, you should not be required to collect tax based on where your consumer is located, but instead based on where you're located. And there are many problems with that. One is it creates tax havens. Any business that's located in a no-sales tax states no-sales tax state, and there are five of them, wouldn't have an obligation to collect tax. The second one is that if I live here in D.C., I can shop on, on Main Street and I know what my tax rate is when I go to a store in the District of Columbia. But if I shop online, how do I know what the tax rate is in California when I'm buying from a California vendor or in Washington State if I'm buying from a Washington State vendor? And when I do get an invoice and it ends up that the California rate is 9-plus percent, I'm not going to be happy. So so an origin regime allowing the vendor to collect tax based on where they're located has complexity, is con- confusing to consumers, and it will create massive economic disruptions. Yeah, if I could just add to sure. that point, Steve, you were just making, that, that we change the very essence of the tax if we shift from the today's destination structure to this origin, that is uh, imposing the tax where the business firm is located. If we do that, we, we really move it from being a tax on consumption uh, to a tax that's on production. And and so it's, it changes the very essence of the tax, that it, that if I make something and sell it, I end up paying my state rate when somebody from wherever uh, buys that item. And, and, again, it's a tax on the value of my production. If I'm a vendor just selling from the place, again, I have, I have to add this tax rate. The example where I live, the rate is 9.25%. So everybody sitting in my, in my county would have to impose a 9.25% rate when they sell things to Oregon, which has a zero tax. No, Bill, they'd just move. 
Yeah, they, no, that's exactly right, Steve. And it, you, you, your point is valid that that the disruptions would be huge. And and so you know the, the really interesting thing was that, that when the sales taxes were developed in the 30s and 40s, people understood this very well. They recognized the essence of of what we're trying to do here is to tax consumption, and you do that by imposing the taxes where people live and enjoy consume. Their glad items, you mentioned. Produced. Glad you mentioned the the 30s and the 40s because we only have about two minutes left. But two quick questions. These laws are generally thought of in terms of buying television, books, or other durable goods, but are services like Netflix or web hosting sites also included at this point? Well, Chicago has just released two rulings, uh, one called the amusement tax and one called the lease tax, and Chicago has said, we're going to impose our 9% tax on the sale of digitally delivered content. So it is something that... It was that, not around in the 40s and no. 50s, that's for sure. Steve, e-commerce was in its infancy when the rules surrounding how it would be taxed were created. In what ways do tax codes and other government regulations need to be updated for the 21st century economy? Yeah, the, the trick is to treat sellers fairly. Don't create ridiculous new burdens so that a state can extend the reach of its regulation and tax auditors across state lines. That's an American principle we've got to uphold. All of your listeners know when they walk into a store in the district or Maryland or Virginia, nobody asks them to pull out their ID so we can figure out where you live, so we can understand whether this T-shirt you bought is taxed where you live, and we can send the money to where you live. We base all of our sales tax on where the business is located. And the sensible solution here is to extend that to all sales, even sales that are made over catalog and online, and let businesses face audits, rates, and rules from the state where they're located. That will bring in the revenue that states are worried about. It'll solve the notion of fairness that some are worried about without creating undue burdens on business. I'm afraid that's all the time we have. Steve DelBianco is the executive director of NetChoice, a D.C.-based e-commerce trade association. Steve, thank you for joining us. Stephen Krantz is a partner at the law firm McDermott, Will, and Emery Stephen. Thank you for joining us. You're welcome. And Bill Fox is the director of the Center for Business and Economic Research at the University of Tennessee. Bill, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. And thank you all for listening. I'm Kojo Nandi. Thanks for listening to the Kojo Nandi Show. And if you're already a member of WAMU 88.5, thank you for your support. If not, it's easy to give online at WAMU.org. Just click the Donate button, and thanks.